We return to Mark's Gospel this morning, and we've got a final passage today before we take a recess from the Gospel of Mark for the summer. We'll be starting a series on kings next week. Once again, here in Mark, we meet Jesus working in the Decapolis, a series of Greek city-states. I had a chance to visit a few years ago. Uh, they were uh, very impressive cities. Even the ruins are impressive, built by Imperial Rome and their conquered Jewish colonies at the time of Jesus here. Now, in this particular setting, in the Decapolis, Jesus is doing ministry among the Gentiles, which is to say non-Jewish people. In the Jewish mind of this time, there were two types of people in the world, Jews and Gentiles. So Jesus is working among Gentiles. And his actions in this chapter, as we'll soon see, are brimming with significance. And the conversations that he has, as we'll also see, are infused with gravitas. As we survey these verses, there's, there's sort of a big major theme that emerges. Let me put it like this. Jesus Christ is here to supply the spiritual needs of the whole world, of all of us, because he's God. And with that theme, there's a question. It comes with a question, a pressing question. Here's the question. Do we understand this? Do you understand this? Do I? So as we plunge in, let's keep your Bibles open. That will be enormously helpful as we tackle today's rather large chunk of text. So keep those Bibles open. In the first three or four verses, we learn that Jesus has been teaching a large crowd. And we all know by now that when Jesus teaches, you pay attention and you give your concentration and therefore you end up hungry. That's what happens here. So Jesus decides once again to open the kingdom of God cafeteria. Glance with me at verses 4 through 8. His disciples answered, but where in this remote place will we get enough bread to feed all these people? How many loaves do you have? Jesus asked. Seven, they replied. He told the crowd to sit on the ground, and when he'd taken the seven loaves and given thanks, he broke them and he gave them to his disciples to distribute to the people, and they did it. They had a few small fish as well, and he gave thanks for the fish, and he told the disciples to distribute those too. And all the people ate and were satisfied, and the disciples picked up seven basketfuls of broken pieces that were left over. Now what happens here, what, what happened in that passage that we just read, is both familiar and unfamiliar. It's kind of like the feeding miracle we read about in Mark chapter 6, verses 30 through 44, right? But there are a, crew, a few crucial differences, right? And these serve to make a central point. The point is this, God does not play favorites. God does not play favorites. And this builds on what Alistair was talking about last week. It's, it amplifies that. So let's break this down a little bit. As we said, Jesus is working in Gentile territory with non-Jewish people. In historical context, the fact that Jesus was there would have been a little bit scandalous, right? What's a good Jewish boy, a rabbi, doing with all those dirty Gentiles, those dogs, right? Because that's what Jews called Gentiles at this time. They called them dogs, right? In our own time, this would be a little bit like Jesus showing up at Donald Trump's apartment, right? What's he doing there? That's not very fitting. Why are you there, Jesus? Right? But sure enough, that's where Jesus is. And he's offering the same things that he's been given to the Jews, the Jewish people earlier in the Gospel of Mark. He's given teaching. He's given food. He's given healing. Mark wants us to see that Jesus Christ has come to supply the spiritual needs of all people. All people. In part, that's what the numbers, those peculiar numbers in today's text are telling us, right? There was a man, and some did count him mad. The more he gave away, the more he had. That's Jesus. 
right? Whenever he feeds people, there are copious amounts of leftovers. Now, there's some numbers attached to those leftovers here, right? In the Bible, as some of you will know if you've been in a Bible study with me, numbers are not just calculations. They are vehicles for theological truth. So in Mark 6, Jesus feeds 5,000 people, 5,000 Jewish people, and there are 12 baskets of leftovers taken up. That represents the 12 tribes of Israel. Jesus is here to supply the spiritual needs of the Jewish people. But today, doing the same thing, right? He starts off with seven loaves and finishes up with seven baskets. That's a significant number, too. Seven's a number of blessing, Sabbath. But it's also a number that the Jewish people at this time used to represent the other nations of the earth. Mark is telling us that Jesus is here to supply the needs of all types of people. The the scope of his ministry is global. Every tribe, every nation, every type of person. In this report, God is making a profound point. It's a point which may shatter certain stereotypes in this room and certainly stereotypes in this city, as I know from talking to people. Jesus Christ is not a tribal God. He's not the God of a certain culture. He's not the God of a particular civilization. He's not the God of the West. He's not the God of Europe and North America. There are a lot of people out there who have that impression. But the record needs to be set straight. Over at Yale University, there's a scholar called Laman Sana. And a few years ago, he wrote a very important book. It's called Whose Religion is Christianity? The book has a singular purpose, to show that Christianity is worldwide and multicultural. It's living proof of a religion transcending ethnic, cultural, national boundaries. Now, of course, in church history at certain points, Christianity has been concentrated among certain civilizations and people groups, right? But in larger perspective and in the world right now, Jesus Christ is called Lord in all sorts of distinct and diverse cultural and social settings. That's what La Mensana demonstrates in this book. That is what Jesus is putting into motion right here in Mark chapter 8. Now, on this subject, there's one other thing I want to highlight this morning. Global Christianity is not monochrome, right? It's not about turning every type of ice cream into vanilla ice cream. That's why, for instance, Christians in Asia or Africa, some of you know, their churches can look very, very different from what's happening right here and elsewhere in North America. And that reality debunks the myth that Christianity is a Western religion. See, to be a Christian, you don't have to adapt to a particular culture, whether it's the culture of the Jewish people at the time of Jesus or whether it's European culture close to our own time. You don't have to adapt to the culture. This is very different from Islam, as some of my Muslim friends have told me in conversations. To be a Muslim, you do end up importing a good bit of Arabic culture. That applies to attire. It applies to language. Quran can only be truly read in Arabic, right? It it applies to interpersonal relational dynamics, right? That's why Muslim people, whether they live in the U.S. or China or elsewhere, all, all sort of become Middle Eastern in certain senses, but not so with Christianity. The living God, the God speaking to us right here and right now through the mouth of Jesus Christ, does not want to stuff everyone into the same mold. That's what Laman Sana means when he says this, Christianity helps Africans to become Renewed Africans, not remade Europeans. The original language of Christianity is translation. Why? Because of what Jesus is doing right here in Mark 8. 
So don't you dare think that Christianity is ethnocentric or territorial, that it's mainly for people who live in certain parts or people who have a particular culture inheritance. Don't you dare think that Jesus would be aghast. Let's turn our eyes now to verses 10 through 14. Jesus got into the boat with his disciples, and he went to the region of Dalmanutha. And the Pharisees came, and they began to ask or question Jesus. They began to test him. They wanted a sign from heaven. He sighed deeply, and he said, Why does this generation ask for a sign? Truly, I tell you, no sign will be given to it. And then he left them and got into the boat and crossed over to the other side. The gnats have started to swarm again. And what timing? Jesus has just crowned a long series of mighty acts with a twice-repeated feeding miracle, stupendous miracle. Imagine a husband who asks his wife, he comes home and asks his wife to demonstrate her love for him by ironing his shirts. Now imagine that he comes home and he asks his wife to do that on a day after she's just finished feeding him supper and she's done all of his laundry and cleaned the whole house. It's insulting. It's an affront. So too with the Pharisees' question right here in verse 11. Show us a sign from heaven. The way that Jesus responds to this speaks volumes. Look at verse 12. He calls them this generation. That's an odd turn of phrase, isn't it? This generation. I mean, we might expect him to say, you people, or your group, or you bunch of knuckleheads. But he says, this generation. What's that about? It's about deja vu. There's today's French word. It's about a song on repeat. It's a reference to something happened way back at the time of Moses. See, in the book of Deuteronomy, which Kate read for us earlier, Moses uses the phrase, this generation. And it's not flattering. It's a rebuke to some of the Israelite people under his leadership at that time. This is what Moses says in Deuteronomy 29. You have seen what the Lord did before your eyes, but you lack a heart to know the Lord and eyes to perceive him. What did God do in those times, back in Moses' time? I'll tell you, he healed people. He fed people. The same things that Jesus has been doing right now. But the Pharisees are intent to resist, just like that former faithless generation. Same old song. It just goes on and on and on. We shouldn't miss the irony in this exchange. The Pharisees at Jesus' time, they think of themselves as the heirs to Moses. But Jesus is telling us that they're actually the heirs to the faithless generation at the time of Moses. The ones that God rebuked through Moses, right? The Pharisees, they know they have a part to play in the drama of salvation, but Jesus is telling them, you don't actually know the part you're playing. They're exhibiting a spiritual perversity which always offends God. What's at the heart of that spiritual perversity? Look at verse 11 and 12. A few clues here that we need to pay attention to. Tell us about spiritual perversity. First, in verse 11, we need to look at the word ask or question. They ask or question Jesus. That's not a neutral term. The Greek there refers, it's a term that, that refers to trying to gain control. It's a term of antagonism. And then there's the word test. In the Bible, there are several words for testing God, right? One of them is a positive word. It means you test God from a position of faith. It means you do something because you really trust God, something that may seem a little crazy at times, but you really trust God. Guess what? That's not the word that's used here. It's another word. It means testing out of a position of hardened skepticism. It's an attempt to discredit or undermine somebody. 
That's the same word that Satan uses when he tests Jesus out in the desert in Mark chapter 1. This kind of testing happens when someone's basically made up their mind about something. They're not really seeking the truth. They've got an opinion, and it becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy. Now, what's going on here? It's not actually that different from what happens in a lot of parliamentary or Senate uh, um, hearings, you know, Senate parliamentary and Senate hearings that we see about from time to time on the news, right? These inquiries are set up to determine the truth of things. But we all know that's not really what happens in those types of inquiries. They're really, they're really set up to determine the scapegoat, right? They're, they say, we want to get the facts and shed light, but, but really they want to bury and blame. They've got an agenda, and it needs to be implemented, and they've already made their minds up before any Q&A happens. Well, you don't have to go to a Senate hearing or a parliamentary hearing to find that type of attitude. It's all over the place. It's in one of my best friends, and maybe it's in the room right now. We should also attend to verse 12 in the word sign that is used here, right? This Greek term does not refer to a miracle. Mark has another word he uses for miracles. That's not the word that's on the Pharisees' lips right now, which is probably why the Pharisees are rather impervious to the fact that Jesus has just done some great miracles, and you better believe they had heard about it. The word used here, the word sign, refers to a raw demonstration of power from on high. Power that could crush the Roman Empire. The type of power that parted the Red Sea and drowned all of Pharaoh's soldiers. Nothing else will satisfy the Pharisees. That's how they operate. They say they seek God, but when God actually shows up, they say, no, thank you. No, thank you. Because he's not doing things their way. And like many of us, when things don't go their way, they're utterly unable to see that things actually might be going in a good way. Isn't that true? When things don't go our way, it can be very hard to see that things are actually going in a good way. So given their attitude, in order for them to recognize who Jesus is, they'd literally have to be clobbered on the head. They'd have to be struck by a bolt of lightning, something that would give them no choice but to succumb, to concede, to relent, to bend. And that's the problem. Why? One scholar puts it like this. Belief into which a person is bludgeoned or bent, and which therefore leaves no course for anything but raw submission, has none of the moral quality of that faith which contributes to the saving of a soul. In other words, God is not a bender. That's not how Jesus works, so don't be haters. That was a joke. Okay, good. <laughs> Cultural relevance. God wants our knees to bow, right? But he, doesn't want, he wants them to bow while we rejoice, not while we fuss. I think that's why Jesus refuses to give the Pharisees the sign that they want here, right? He says, no, there will be none of the signs from heaven that you want because there are all kinds of signs on earth right now. You're not seeing them. I, I just fed 4,000 people and 5,000 people. That's the business of my kingdom, so don't blame me for your lack of faith. The perversity of the Pharisees is still around, I think. Not just out there, but also in here, and certainly in here even. This perversity is tied to the big question that is jumping out of this passage. Do we understand who Jesus is? Do we? We can be just like the Pharisees, right? We can want God to 
behave in a certain way, to take it, for his power to take a certain form at a certain time, we decide. We can be like that. And when things don't go as we prefer, we, we indulge sheer unbelief. Humans have always struggled to trust God in this way, and it happened with Jesus all the time in his ministry. Sometimes he seems to delay, and people want him to hurry up. Sometimes he refuses to do what people think he can or should do, and so he gets rejected, even though people don't have all the facts. The French thinker Jacques Ellul argues that this type of struggle, what's going on right here in the text and also in us, has been intensified in modern society. We've been taught, most of us at least growing up in this part of the world, that nearly everything in life can be manipulated to our own ends. And so we have delusions of grandeur, and they lead us to self-righteousness and arrogance before God. And so just like the Pharisees, we say, do this, God, or I'm walking away. But God will not be used for our convenience. I think that's why Jesus sighs deeply in verse 12. What's the deeper problem in all of this? What's our problem, perhaps? We're making ourselves into God. And to the, to, to the degree that we do that, even if we do it unknowingly, we're actually destroying the possibility of real relationship with God. We're undermining it. We're setting a table for our meal with only ourselves. And that's not real relationship. That's why Jesus says, no, I'm not going to do this. Is the Pharisee attitude out here. We're looking at a mirror, folks. I'm looking at it too. Do we see a skepticism that claims to be open, but in fact is quite closed-minded, intractable, even blind? Together, we've got to realize that faith is not the belief that God will do what we want, but the belief that God will do what is right and what is necessary. Did you get that? Not what we want, but what is right and necessary. The last section of our text switches back to the disciples, and perhaps we expect a positive contrast, that their example is more godly. They give us a better alternative to the Pharisees. Well, you're going to be disappointed, because that's not what they do today. Now, their issue isn't exactly the same as the Pharisees' issue, right? They don't have hardened prejudicial skepticism, right? But there are some parallels. Let's look at these verses here, verses 14 through 18. Now, they had forgotten to bring the bread, the disciples, that is. And they had only one loaf with them in the boat. And Jesus cautioned them, saying, Watch out, beware of the leaven or the yeast of the Pharisees and the yeast of Herod. And they began discussing with one another the fact that they had no bread. And Jesus was aware of this. He said, Why are you discussing the fact that you have no bread? Do you not perceive and understand? Are your hearts hardened? Do your eyes not see? Having ears, do you not hear? Nothing like a little word association to get things off track. That's what happens here. Jesus starts talking about yeast and leaven, which are used to make bread, and guess what? His disciples start thinking about supper. How easily does the stomach drive the mind? Seems they forgot the picnic basket, and then there's a little hunger panic. Now, the discussion that unfolds here, something really awkward and embarrassing comes out. The disciples themselves have a lack, staggering lack of comprehension about who Jesus is. The disciples. Jesus encountered a lack of understanding on the shore, and then he got into the boat, and guess what? It followed him right out into the boat. It didn't remain on the shore. Poor Jesus, he can't get away from it. Now, as I see it, there are two essential points leaping out of this passage for our consideration. First, there's the, the question of provision. Why are the disciples so worried about food? Right, what's going on here? These guys have seen a pair of tremendous 
feeding miracles, and it's like the memories just melted away. And so they look idiotic. In the States, and perhaps Canada, there's a weird type of lottery programming that comes on from time to time. It features talking heads who give advice about to would-be lottery winners. I watched John Oliver talk about this a few weeks ago. People relish this advice, right? Even though the odds of winning the lottery are 1 in 476 million, which is to say the odds are lower than the odds of getting struck by lightning while being eaten at by a shark. Okay? <laughs> Nonetheless, people give extraordinary focus and concentration to these programs. It seems that there's a pressing need to know whether to take the money in a lump sum, how to invest it responsibly, how to manage the taxes, whether to set it up in a trust, because it's never too early to start protecting your imaginary winnings from crippling estate taxes. It's ridiculous. You get the point. So too with the disciples' preoccupation about food right here in verses 16 and 17. They seem to have amnesia. It's not registering that Jesus can supply their needs more than once. Many of us have this same amnesia, I think. At least I do, and I'm sure I'm not the only one. How often do we fail to really see and embrace the hand of God at work in our circumstances, in our difficulties, or our perceived difficulties? Right? Have we, do we fall into the destitution that sometimes we fear we're going to fall into? Are we without clothing? I don't see anyone naked today. Yet when the next problem comes along, the next difficulty or hardship, we slide so quickly back into anxiety and fear and restlessness. And in such moments, as you and I both know, all of our thoughts are a case of knives, and every knife seems to destroy a hope. To quote the Victorian preacher C.H. Spurgeon, might we not find enough in our journals or our memories to condemn such familiar worries, to bury our cares, or at least to shut, shut up our present anxieties in a cage made from golden bars of God's past mercy? Very poetic. Sadly, just like the disciples here in chapter 8, we seem to be much better at calculations than we are at belief. You can count the fact that there's only one loaf of bread. Secondly, there's the issue of disbelief here. And this kind of dovetails with what I've just said. It explains the reason, I think, for the disciples' fear about not having any food. And it helps us to understand why these insiders are acting like outsiders. We've got to reflect on the central metaphor Jesus uses in this text. Verse 15 is the image of yeast or leaven. It's what's used to make beer or bread. Now, in the ancient world, everyone would have understood yeast. We need a little bit of explaining, unless you're a brewer like myself or a baker. Yeast does its work in a hidden but sure way. When you put yeast into dough, you don't really see it. You don't see it do its thing, but eventually you see the thing it does. The bread rises. And the other thing about yeast is that it spreads rapidly. It pervades everything. Right? That's why the baker who uses yeast will keep the bread with the yeast in it totally separate from the other bread because it will spread right in very quickly. Now, as this little analogy that Jesus uses of yeast applies to our proclivity towards disbelief, what Jesus is saying is that it can't be left unchecked. It can't be contained in a corner. It's like a bag of potato chips. You can't just eat one. In these verses, Jesus is telling his core followers that their failure to understand him is kind of like gangrene, and it's got to be identified and cut out. And if that doesn't happen, a bigger problem will arise. Verse 17, hardness of heart. 
So to put it another way, you, we can leave sin alone, but it won't leave us alone. You get that? The yeast of disbelief is present right here in the boat, verses 14 through 16. We see it in the disciples' confusion. They don't really get Jesus. They don't understand. That's why they're fretting about supper. And gazing into all of this, Jesus sees unbelief. Not in a full-blown, hardened form, but it's there nonetheless. And he's telling his friends that if it's not acknowledged and repented, it will lead them to be just as adversarial as the Pharisees. In other words, if you stay on that train, that's where you're going. That's why Jesus calls them out. That's why he may be calling some of us out right now. I mean, the question's pretty pointed. Is your heart hard? Is your heart getting hard towards me? I have no doubt that that question asked his disciples in the boat would have elicited a little bit of embarrassment on the part of the disciples. Can't you just see them kind of gulping? Are your heart hard? Embarrassing. I mean, imagine asking Pope Francis if he loves God, right? From one angle, it's quite rude and insulting. But that is precisely what God is doing to his closest followers right here. Is your heart hard towards me? That's what God's asking. This question maybe makes some of us squirm. It makes me squirm. Make makes some of us feel ashamed, but don't be shamed because that's not what Jesus is after here. Don't be embarrassed, but don't be naive either. This is a struggle that we have to name and tame. The good news is this. Whenever Jesus exposes the presence of unbelief in his people, he does so to create an occasion for a more steady, mature, and joyful faith. And that's what we need to ponder briefly in closing. And we need to do it in two ways. First, we need to consider what Jesus does. And then we need to remember what Jesus did. Verses 19 and 20 say this. This is Jesus speaking to his disciples in the moment. When I broke the five loaves for 5,000, how many basketfuls did you pick up? Twelve. And when I did the same thing with seven loaves for 4,000, how many basketfuls did you pick up? Seven. There's something super instructive here. Jesus' disciples are anxious about the lack of food, but he's anxious about their lack of faith. And look how he responds. He basically says, guys, you need to recall what I've been doing. I fed thousands of people. There were baskets and baskets and baskets left over. I can meet needs and I can meet your needs right now. In other words, part of avoiding hardness of heart towards Jesus is remembering what he does for us real time. Steady faith is built on this type of understanding. The lesson here is extremely important because the disciples' problem, I call the problem of forgetfulness or the problem of situational amnesia is our problem. It afflicts all of us in some, some way, shape, or form. Situational amnesia. You temporarily forget things that are true. When I was a graduate student in the UK, I was dominated by a cycle of situational amnesia. I'd write an essay, I'd get a decent mark, I'd get some good feedback, I'd feel reasonably competent and confident, and I'd, I'd know I was on the right track. And then something would happen. I'd be in a seminar and I wouldn't have anything worthwhile to say. Or I'd read somebody else's essay and it just sounded so much better. And I'd feel inferior or inept, and then I'd start second-guessing my decision to take a degree, and I'd feel panic, and I'd start thinking about other options, like dropping out and going back into business. 
Now, from what I know, based on what certain friends pointed out to me in the midst of that cycle, I came to recognize that those instances of acute discouragement and panic, they sometimes happened within days of getting affirmation from my professor that made me feel confident and competent. This kind of stuff happens all the time. We forget. It happens in our relationships. It happens in our workplace settings. And you better believe it happens towards God. And in those moments, our feelings in an instant, can break wildly free from reality. It's like a kite that feels like its cord has been cut off, even though the string is very much intact. That's situational amnesia. That's what's going on with the disciples and many of us. We forget what Jesus does. We forget that he can still do it. And when that happens, our faith regresses. We've got to deal with this. We've got to focus on what Jesus does, what he's doing for us right now. This is crucial for facing an unknown future. Now, there's a practice that comes out of this lesson, the practice of gratitude. The practice of gratitude. We can go home and start doing it today. Committing to memory. Whatever it takes, get it tattooed on your arm, embroider it on your towel, write write a poem or a song about it, write it down like the disciples did in the New Testament. Remember God's provision and blessing over your life. Make it the most important thing you don't want to forget. Most of us can see this at times, but then we forget very quickly. And when we forget, we get distant from Jesus. Corey Ten Boom, who survived a Nazi concentration gap, puts it this way. This is what the past is for. Every experience God gives us, every person he puts into our life, is preparation for the future which only God knows right now. Do you know this? Are you taking note of what Jesus is doing for you? In addition, we also need to see what Jesus did for us. Look back once more at verse 12. little indication here. Jesus says this, Truly I tell you, no sign will be given to you. There's a very unusual grammatical structure in that Greek. It literally reads, If a sign shall be given to this generation, may I die. If a sign shall be given, may I die. And it turns out that's a prophetic word. You see, Jesus never did give the type of sign that the Pharisees were after. He never marched a heavenly army against Rome. He never struck down his enemies, but he was struck down for them and for us. That's where Mark's gospel is leading. Why? Why does Jesus supply the spiritual needs of the whole world this way? By being struck down for us. You know what? Because he knew what we easily miss or forget or don't see. If Jesus called down heavenly armies to wipe out the Romans, if he gave the type of sign that the Pharisees and many other people have long wanted, that wouldn't really solve the problem. You see, even the so-called bad guys, like the Romans at that time, they've got some good in them. And even the so-called good guys, like the Jews at that time, they have some bad in them. All humans are mixed bag. Romans, Pharisees, disciples... And us. And so if Jesus wanted to clean up the world by dealing with the problematic people, we'd all have to go. But God loves us. And so he took a different course. He did die rather than give the type of sign that the Pharisees wanted. And that's how he meets our greatest common spiritual need. Friends, Jesus came into this world knowing that something had to give. And so he said, I'm going to give my life for yours. And that's exactly what he did. 
He did it in AD 33 on a hill outside Jerusalem. He did it when he said, it is finished. Jesus did this. He went to the cross to give us the type of sign that we most need from God, not just a sign of God's power, but also a sign of God's love, a sign that says, I am with you. I am for you. If you're not on my team, I don't want to play basketball. If I don't hear your laugh in heaven, my smile is not going to be as big. That is the heartbeat that stands at the center of all the gore and agony and blood of the cross of Christ. That's what Jesus did. Do you understand? As this truth pours into our minds from God's word, let's ask the spirit of the risen Christ to bring us more fully into this reality. Let's pray for each other this way because we don't resolve this on our own. Jesus himself must open our eyes. And since Jesus was pleased to give his life for us, it's very safe to assume with great confidence that he will be pleased to open our eyes. May we hear what the Spirit is saying to the church.